Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and ghost stories. Here in the United States during the past century, ghosts and ghost stories have been mostly a Halloween tradition. This was not always the case. Today, I am joined by Byron of the theater troupe Phantasmagoria to remind us of an almost forgotten tradition of sharing stories about ghosts and specters during the Christmas evenings. Phantasmagoria has been wowing critics and audiences with its whismical macabre style since its premiere in 2010. They offer their own unique blend of storytelling, dance, large-scale puppetry, aerial work, fire performance, and even stage combat in their performances. Created and envisioned by writer-director John Didona in collaboration with a diverse collection of collaborators, cast, crew, and designers, Phantasmagoria's main stage and touring productions offers stories taken from the centuries-old literature of horror and legend. Their appearances and special events, which number in the hundreds each year, charm with a professional variety of circus, sideshow, and theatrical flair, along with their tales of local legends and folklore. Now, with the 2022 Yuletide season, Phantasmagoria will be presenting a double bill of A Christmas Carol and The Canterville Ghost. So please, Take a walk within the mist with me and my special guest, Byron, as we talk about the traditions of Christmas ghost stories and how Phantasmagoria is keeping the practice alive for all of us to enjoy. Welcome to the show, Byron. Oh, thank you, my friend. And I am greatly honored. I did not realize that just as the Halloween ended, you're already back on stage doing rehearsals for your Christmas presentations. Uh, it, it's a little overwhelming for us, too, as you would imagine. We um, we literally unloaded the trucks from our final performance in uh, at, at the Athens Theater in Deland. We did an appearance in the afternoon for the city of Sanford, and we drove from there to our first read-through rehearsal for Christmas Carol and Gantical Ghost. So it's a little exhausting. It's our busy season, as you would say. Well, you give all new meaning to the phrase, no rest for the wicked. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> now, I was reading through the history of Phantasmagoria. So you've been ongoing since 2010. How did the show get started and where did the idea or concept come from? Mm. So, yeah, well, it's, it's been really interesting. We've been surfing it uh, in a way. It's it just like took on a life of its own. So um I had wanted to have some type of a, uh, a horror circus. This was just this amorphous idea in my brain for many years. And I had talked with numerous collaborators about, well, it could be this, it could be that, but nothing ever stuck. And then I was in Georgia because I used to go up to Georgia to teach each summer. And I saw a puppet show that was a Faulkner novel. So it was this very serious topic and it was, you know, spoken word and music and somebody was playing um, a ukulele or a banjo. I don't remember. And, and there were puppets, you know, and it was just this wonderful kind of, you know, conflagration of different things, of different performance techniques. And I just said, 
oh my God, this is the idea. And I called my collaborators down here and I said, I think I know what it is, kind of. I'm going to start exploring it. And they went, do it. So I wrote the script for the first Phantasmagoria like in a week in Atlanta, Georgia, sitting you know, in between teaching assignments. And uh, I came back home and we put together a troupe of people we knew. There were no auditions. We kind of called the people we trusted. And we performed the first show thinking it was going to be our only show. So I should honestly say we just performed the show. And it was simply called Phantasmagoria, uh, which is a centuries-old name, meaning basically ghost show, uh, ghost performance. And um, it went very well. (laughs) And by the second week of performance, people were asking us, oh, what are you going to do next year? And I was like, I didn't know there was a next year. So we all stood together in a big circle on the closing night. And I said, hey, you guys want to do this again next year? And everybody was like, yes. And I said, well, that's great, but we can't do the same show. We have to do a different show. And they were all aboard. So we, we wrote the new show. We came back and did that. And that also went very well, extremely well. And we were so creative. We called it Phantasmagoria 2, you know, because we didn't know what else to call it. And then slowly we started getting calls to do appearances. Like, you know, hey, have you ever guys ever thought about appearing at a comic book convention? And we're like, no, we don't even know what that is. But of course, why not? And then, you know, doing a party here or an event there or hosting this here or there. And it turned into a year round thing. We thought it was going to be one show, one Halloween for four weeks. And now it's, you know. 12 and a half years of our lives <laughs> that we're still doing this. So it just took on a life of its own, honestly. Uh, a, a dear friend, Marty, uh, many years ago, kind of looked at me and said, you had no idea, did you? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, none of us did. Um, so it's just it's just good to be here and telling the stories. And that is great. In fact, yeah, I, the first time I saw one of your performances was at a Megacon in Orlando. Ah, yes. Bravo. We, uh, we, we teamed up with Megacon about, I think it was five years ago now. I think we're going into our yeah. sixth year. I don't even remember. And, um, and again, it's not, you know, this is not a world, we're all theater trained, ballet trained. You know, this is all new to us uh, to experience all those things. And we're loving it. We absolutely love it. I and mean, the crowds at Megacon are loving and supportive and, and cheer us on. And it just, it feels good to be part of that community as well. Great. And I can tell you, we love it as well. So what goes into preparing a show? Uh, So it's funny that you say that because I I was thinking about bringing this up when we were doing the interview because an hour and a half ago, I was loading up the files for the research for next year's main stage. Um, Literally, it takes a year to write the shows. So we start writing them about a year out. So this is the right time. This is the time when I start doing the research, find the stories I want to tell, um, in past years, they've been more variety. So, you know, we've taken stories from all different cultures. What we started gearing more towards is themed shows. So as you know, this last year was Poe. Next year, we, we're not going to say it now, but we have a theme for next year. We know what we're doing. It's not one author. It's more like a type of story that we're going to be telling next year. And so, you know, we start going through all of our old catalog of stories that we've told because we've told hundreds of stories at this point, going through all the old catalogs of those, doing research into new stories, um, tracing back, finding the original versions of them. We don't like using like, you know, a newer version. We find all the original versions. So for example, there's a story we'll be doing next year that originally I wanted to do 
but then found out it was based on another story. I found that other story. I traced it all the way back to the 1400s, where it was in a book of English history. It wasn't even considered literature. So it's fun. You go down these rabbit holes. So I'll go down a rabbit hole for the next um, next two months, and then I'll start the writing process at that point. So that takes all that in. And then at the same time that's happening, we have someone who composes our music now. So they'll start composing the music for it. And then Alina, who's our choreographer, will start voicing up on what kind of dances we need to do. So it's a collaboration, really, from day one. And you can see the amount of work that goes into it from each of the team because you do dance, you do stage fight, and even puppetry is involved in many of the stories you tell. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's like what serves the story best? Could, could this tale be told through dance? Could it be throw, told through movement? Does it need dialogue? Um, does it need, is there a certain character that has to be a puppet? You know, we don't like doing it just as a gimmick. It, it has to be a puppet. And, and many times there is, you know, it becomes the, the force of the story, so to speak. We've done puppets that are, um, like this year you saw it, it was more like a life-size puppet. We've done puppets that are 12 foot high. We've done, uh, the gargoyle was a, a gargoyle, was a puppet that was about 14 feet long. So, you know, we, we find the character itself and then create the puppet around that um, is what we do. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, I, I, like right now sitting here, no concept on what is or not going to be a puppet next year. Once we're telling the stories, then we go, oh, that's it right there. Uh, we try to include something in every year. I don't think there's ever been a year where there wasn't um some type of puppet in it, in the main stage, at least. We don't do it necessarily for events, but for the main stage shows. Now, you mentioned that you were finding stories even dated as far back as the 1400s. So the tradition of telling ghost stories during the long winter evenings, especially during the 19th century, has been pretty much a long tradition during the Yuletide season, wouldn't you say? Oh, it actually goes, it, it predates the 19th century. It goes back uh, longer than that. It's, you know, the, the, the folklore. So every culture has had it. Uh, ours is linked, of course, more to, to England's, you know, because that's our direct, you know, we're the direct heirs of England, so to speak. Um, but it's a tradition that started well before Charles Dickens. It's not like he invented it. Uh, he, he tagged along with it. You know, he, he went with it. And it's just, you know, it's natural. Uh, I, I've looked over the years for like, when did this start and, and who established this tradition? And there's no set point in time because you're talking about storytelling, which goes back to, you know, Neanderthals sitting in a cave, you know, finding a way to talk of the hunt or something. So storytelling is, is human. That's the best thing you can say about it, right? So it goes back to the dawn of time. Um, the, the Greek storytellers, which is what we're actually based on. We're supposed to be still those same storytellers from Greece. Um, that's the legend of Phantasmagoria. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so people would gather near a fire to tell stories. And when it's dark outside and when it's winter time and we've moved through the solstice into the Yule time season, the nights are a lot longer than the days. And, you know, Yule supposedly, you know, the way it's celebrated is, is towards the longest nights, the shortest days and longest nights of the year. So what better stories to tell than ghost stories <laughs> when you're sitting in front of a fire and candles are blazing, you know? Um, so that appears to be the tradition. Um, and Dickens certainly solidified it and made it a part of popular culture 
to tell the ghost stories, you know, he, uh, but, but it goes back to Shakespeare. I think it was, um, oh, oh boy, this is going to be a hard one. Um, Winter's Tale. Um, a sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. That's a quote from Shakespeare. So we're back in the 1600s here doing that, you know? So it, it definitely predates, um, predates Dickens. But our tradition of Christmas is firmly based in the Victorian concept of Christmas. Um, Christmas has, has always existed. Christmas, there was a war on Christmas once. It was banned. You know, Cromwell and the Puritans, they, they stopped Christmas. You know, it's, it's Cromwell gets the blame. He was just kind of there. It was more the Puritans who did this. Um, but they forbade you to celebrate on Christmas. Um, and it's kind of, you know, Dickens is credited with bringing Christmas back. But it was more like, you know, this, uh, this combination of Dickens coming in and all of a sudden this tradition of the, you know, this German tradition of the Christmas tree, you know, going back to the pagans and now coming in. And then I think, and I could be wrong, but I think this is around the same time that the Christmas card, the commercial Christmas card started, the greetings. So all of this kind of merged together to bring back the ghost story at Christmas. Um, and, you know, we don't do that in America. And it's Why do it's, you think? We were established by the Puritans. So, you know, that's a good start, right? Um, so it, it, the tradition wasn't brought here um, because the Puritans, you know, forbade it in their own culture. So, of course, it was going to be forbidden here in America. Um, you know, we're a fast-paced culture. We, um, we like to be on the move. Uh, I'm talking mostly, you know, 1950 on, you know, we have television, we have movies, we have radio, we have all this stuff. So we don't necessarily need, uh, well, we think we don't need storytelling. Um, and, but obviously, you know, <laughs> we're in our, moving into our 13th year telling stories. So obviously someone wants to hear the stories still. Um, but it is a shame. You know, there's been all these, I've seen these articles like, please bring back the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas, you know, and, and hopefully that's what we're doing. Um, that's why we decided to tell Christmas Carol, uh, you know, I think this is our sixth year of doing it. And that's why we decided to do that. And I'm glad that you did. Uh, in fact, the first time that I was taking my wife to one of your shows, it was kind of hard to explain exactly what it was going to be because, you know, I explained that it was presentations of the different stories of ghost stories and so forth. So in her mind, she kind of got the impression that it was just someone standing on a stage reciting a story out of a book. Sure. When she when she got there and actually saw the amount of production that you put into it and the uh, not only telling the story, but enacting it made it come much more alive. Oh, so, good. Uh. Yeah, you. Definitely uh, impressed her very much on that. Ah, well, that's what, you know, that's what you want to do. It's, do you remember like back in high school? So as we're going to go back a couple of years here for both of us and the teacher brings out the book on Shakespeare and starts reading it at the front of the classroom and you fall asleep, you're bored. Uh, yes. And then you see Shakespeare for the first time and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what it is. And, and it's, it's bawdy and it's violent and it's funny and it's, it's dangerous. And that's the same thing with reading Poe. You know, you could read Poe and it's a wonderful experience. But then to bring it to life in front of somebody is a whole other experience, you know. And, and that's what we like to do. We like to bring the stories to life and kind of explore them and discover, you know. Like, well, you saw the most recent ones. So it's like, oh, we could tell this story about the raven. But you know what's even more interesting? What is he smelling? He's smelling Lenore. 
she's there. She will not let him go and he cannot let her. That's the more interesting part of the story, you know? So, so it's about getting inside the stories and kind of crawling around inside of them a bit. And then when you're picking stories that are more of a Yuletide nature, are you looking for the same type of ghost stories that would fall into your Halloween shows or do they have a different flavor or atmosphere to them? Totally different flavor and atmosphere. Now, um, so the ones that we do on the main stage, we look at, you know, it's, it's the Yuletide season. So we look for joy. We look for celebration, you know, with a lesson, you know, both Christmas Carol and Canterville Ghost. I don't know how um, uh, much, you know, Canterville Ghost. It's a rollick. It's a comedy for, for the most part until the last, you know, 10 minutes. And then it's this tragedy and, and, and a moral lesson that you get. But what both Dickens and Wilde were giving us was stories of reclamation, the stories of renewal. And think about that again. You know, it's the Christmas season. Everything dies out. In the spring, everything comes back. So it's following those old traditions of the seasons and everything. Um, it's the new year is about to be born, etc. So they tell that. So for the main stage, we look more for the miracle and the joy and the celebration. However, a few years back, and we will do this again, we did a, a story called Through a Christmas Darkly. And we found the darkest Christmas ghost stories we could find. Uh, you know, everything. You know, Krampus was, of course, in there. But there's a lot of others that are very dark. Some that are might be even too dark for the main stage show. And actually, those stories, I really do remember. Because, yeah, there was such a stark contrast to your regular shows of how dark they really got. So Absolutely. Dark yeah, they Christmas tales. <laughs> and they were written for Christmas. And that's the most beautiful part of it. <laughs> Yeah, at first I thought you and your cast wrote those. And then I discovered that you could actually find these. They were written hundreds of years ago and were told hundreds of years ago. So that boggled my mind even more. Absolutely. That's why I said like it takes uh, that's why it takes that year of research and going down the rabbit hole. You know, if you didn't. So so. For example, that one I was referencing earlier, the story from the late 1800s that I had wanted to do, which now I'm going to get to do next year. Um it, it's a fantastical story about a creature. I'm not going to say what, because then I would reveal the theme, obviously, of next year's show. And then going back in time, I end up with a history book, not a book of fiction, but what in the 1400s they took as fact that this creature existed. So it's amazing to follow that backwards in time and discover, you know, the belief systems of people and, and, you know, what, what they actually, you know, science of the time, what they actually believed. So it's, it's, it's fun for me to just do the research, you know, I, you know, maybe one day when I'm 90 years old, I'll just be doing the research and handing them off to other people because it's fun. Um, but yeah, we always, we do do original stories. Now don't get me wrong. We do. Sometimes people don't realize it's an original story because what we do is we take a, um, we take something from mythology um, or um, a, a tale of folklore that doesn't have a story written around it. It's just the folklore. And we develop the story out. Right. We, we tell it in a new way. So those are original. And then we have writers like Eric Keevan out in Seattle, who has written a number of our stories that we've done. Um, and they're all original, but he knows Phantasmagoria. So what he does is he'll write a short story that he knows is our flavor hand it over to me, say, adapt it to the stage. And I adapt it to our style. He approves it. And then we perform the story. So we, that's really the only originals that we do. Everything else is literature based. 
uh, sometimes religion-based, believe it or not, we're, we're an irreligious troop, but we have told stories from Christian mythology, um, Islamic mythology, Jewish mythology. We just did that last year. We ended with the, with the golem. Uh, that's Jewish mythology. So, um, so technically, I guess we've actually, we did a story. I mentioned it earlier, the Gogui. And everybody was like, gee, that's the language sounded so familiar. What was that from? And I laughed and I said, I actually took this tale of the behemoth from the Bible and I adapted it to the Gogui. That's what that was. So it was literally stuff from the Bible that was in there. But of course they didn't know because we, we take out the, the, the religious elements, so to speak, because we wanted to speak to everyone, uh, you know, all of humanity, not just one religion. Do you find doing uh, ghost stories or even Halloween stories a little different doing them here in Florida where it feels like summer year round? Yeah, <laughs> we have to create the atmosphere even for ourselves, don't we? Um, you know, we're about to put up um, it, it's it's November 4th. And Simarine, Lady Simarine, is uh, in the other room putting up the Christmas tree <laughs> so we can do promotional videos. And it's, you know, 80 degrees outside. So it's, it's a little, yes, it would be much easier in a, a dank, dark climate like in London or, um, or at least where seasons where I can see the leaves changing. So we have to put ourselves in the mood. Just if we're not in the mood as actors, the audience is never going to be in the mood. So we have to put ourselves in that place. It, it is more difficult. I think that that is a really, really unique. That's the first time anybody's ever said that. That's a unique assessment. And I agree. Well, I mean, I've even noticed on your stage, you are kind of minimal on stage uh, settings and dressings. Absolutely. Uh, much the cast is the stage and the props. Absolutely. You know, we may do some set dressings. Like this year, we did a little bit more set, uh, you know, art direction than we normally would. Um, but it's, it's the projections. So it's Dana's projections. It's, uh, you know, we are, a, you know, we're a circus, we're a traveling circus, we're traveling performers. So literally we'll show up at a theater with those trunks you see on stage and we'll unpack them and everything is in those trunks. So we are truly a circus. Um, so all we need are those trunks and those projections and maybe a couple of levels or two. And people have said to me before, it's like, oh, you know, I don't have room for all those trunks and stuff. And I say, great, we'll come with our costumes because we don't need anything else. You know, we don't need all those trappings. We we just did, um, you know, we've done the shows on the trains. You've got your stage is a two foot aisle. We just did shows on cruise boats, like small cruise boats, 100 people. Um, they're, they're called the pirate water taxis. And they're these pirate taxis out in Tampa. And they're not painted like pirate boats. They're painted like taxis. So they're yellow and black. And, and we did our shows on them in the aisles. And they switched boats on us, I think, three different times. So the ladies in the Phantasmagoria Tampa troupe, they, they adjusted with nothing and just went with, oh, we have an aisle this time. We'll use this. Oh, look, it's a big circle. Tell the stories in this. So it's just it really just comes down to the story the text it doesn't matter if we're standing on a stage that's fully decorated or on a box in the middle of the street if we're telling the story that's the environment that's the set and the lights and the sound right there and the story is so important and it's amazing how well some of these ghost stories have lasted through the centuries i mean charles dickens christmas carol it was first written in 1843 and it's as popular now as it was then 
probably even more, although he did, I think he sold out. I think it was printed on like December 19th, something like that. And I think he sold out by Christmas Eve, <laughs> which is just you know amazing for his pockets. I'm sure um, it had like 13 printings in its first year, which is just incredible. But yes, I mean, everyone still does it right now. Uh, one of the other Christmas carols in town actually wrote on one of my postings for the new show. Wow. I'm doing one too. I think there's five of them in town. And I'm like, yep. And you know, they're all different mm-hmm. and they're all, you know, a different approach. So why not? You know, it's a universal story um, because, you know, Dickens spoke to humans. What people don't know is that Dickens has, I think three other Christmas ghost stories that just didn't, if they didn't resonate. They did not stick with the public as much. The second two kind of failed. The fourth one yeah, sold fairly well. Um, it, it's it's kind of like a dark version of It's a Wonderful Life in a lot of ways. Like what would happen if this person did not exist um, in, in the world? And but but this one, Scrooge and and his conscience and Marley and Cratchit, you know, this one stuck forever. Um, And it's because, you know, I'm not so sure that our world right now is not very similar to the climate that Dickens wrote the original story in. Um, There's a part in in Christmas Carol where, you know, Cratchit is is asking for the day off. You know, he wants Christmas off. And Scrooge is, no, (laughs) why would I do that? And then finally relents. Well, what I don't think a lot of people realize is that the act of Scrooge relenting in 1843 was a surprising act of kindness because people worked on Christmas. They did not have the day off. It was not a recognized holiday. Um, so in reality, Scrooge was, you know, I won't mention names, but an industrial baron of the time, you know, and we have a lot of those, don't we? Uh, now they go to space. Um, so we have a lot of them. So our world right now is kind of that, you know, end of industrial revolution, commercialization world. So I think that's why it still resonates because we still have Scrooges and we still need Cratchits and we still need past, present and future you know, to save us a little bit. So it, it, it's long lasting. I will. Yes. It resonates with everyone who hears it. As well as um, you were mentioning the Canterville ghosts. I have read it uh, by, you know, Oscar Wilde is a very popular writer and has written a large collection. And this being his most well-known ghost story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time now it's on the American side. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and it's, um, it, it, it's very much a British tale. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's performed a lot in England around the holidays, um, whether it's on the BBC or, you know, it's a radio show or you watch the, the production Patrick Stewart did because Patrick Stewart played Sir Simon many years ago um, uh, or it's done on stage. You know, they, they, they choose to do the onstage version. Uh, a lot of people in America don't know it as well. Um, they've, they've heard it. Oh, I've, I've heard that Canterville Ghost, but no one knows what it is. So that's why we chose to tell it this year. Um, it's. It's also slapstick funny. So I know we will be exhausted telling this because it's full of slapstick pranks and jokes <laughs> and, and, and pratfalls and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, you know, we, we just started rehearsing it, my friend. And we're, we've been making allusions to um, the ghost of Mrs. Muir because there's some commonality between it. And we've definitely been making 
comparisons to Christmas Carol because it's like, oh, there's this moment in Christmas Carol that's happening to Sir Simon right now. And, um, and you know, Virginia, the character of Virginia, the young girl in Canterville Ghost is kind of his past, present and future. She's the one who represents his conscience and, um, and brings him to reclamation, you know, because he's, without spoiling it, he's saved by the end. <laughs> so just like Scrooge's. So um, it's, we're looking forward to seeing how it plays. Um, we've done it as a story, like as a read story before, but we've never done it as, um, as a performed story. So we're, we're looking forward to seeing how this goes. So then the theme, I guess, for the night is a night of redemptions. Yeah, renewal. I'm trying to think of some of the words we were discussing, you know, renewal, redemption, reclamation, which is actually a word that's used in Christmas Carol, uh, you know, reclamation. Um, we've been talking about it again in a very kind of secular way. Miracles, like all the little miracles, like whether it's the, the miracles that we don't question that happen in life, not religious miracles, but just these surprising moments. You know, Marley is there. How? Marley doesn't even know how. You know, how I come to be with you, I cannot tell. He doesn't even know. Um, so why does he have this opportunity? Why does Scrooge get this opportunity? Um, why, why perchance did this crass American family buy a haunted castle in Canterville Chase, you know, and move in? And this ghost who thinks that he's master of this castle for three centuries is tortured by the twins and is beat up and is destroyed by this American family who doesn't even believe he's a ghost um, because he needed that tale. He needed that to happen for him to move on, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, so redemption, reclamation, these small little miracles that we ignore that happen every day. I think that's what our celebration of Christmas truly is. I, I agree. Your ghost stories definitely would bring about more of a Christmas feeling than any other Christmas special or story that could be told. Well, we should try the Star Wars Christmas special one. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we don't want to go that scary. <laughs> that's dark, right? That's that was dark. dark. <laughs> but speaking of that, you do a lot of shows, uh, as you were mentioning, on trains, on boats. Mm -hmm. uh, we even attended your Valentine's show at a restaurant. Oh, when, my gosh, so, yes. So, yeah, it was amazing to hear, you know, the darker side of Valentine's Day. <laughs> It, it's, you know, like every every season has its dark stories we've discovered. And, you know, this is not something that I would have known 13 years ago. This is something that we've, you know, explored and learned um, as we've gone. So, what you know, we may do another Valentine's Day show again next year. We don't know. You know, we, we wait until the end of the year and we can actually sleep for a day or so. And then we make our decisions for the next year. Um, but um, that was it was fun to, you know, a lot of ghost stories are about lost love and betrayal and murdering of one's, you know, lover and things like that. And I'm like, well, let's do a story. Let's do a show with all of these. So that was fun to do. And and, you know, that show. So that show you saw it at Maxine's, which is a wonderful place to work. Um, but as you saw, not a stage. Right? Yeah. We're running around tables doing these stories. And then you move from there to a proscenium theater. Uh, and then you move from there to a tiny little black box theater, which is in three quarter. And that's what keeps us alive. It's like every place we go is, well, there goes everything we planned. And you have to kind of reinvent it as you go. So I think that's why we as storytellers enjoy doing it. Uh, it keeps us on our toes. Let's say that. You claim that you need rest, but uh, even during the COVID lockdown, you were doing the Book of Faces, which was amazing <sighs> productions. You were doing right out of your own home 
posting on social media every Sunday, uh, telling these amazing stories and then, you know, the fire dancing and so forth. So I think you're, you're a bit more passionate about this than even you think. (laughs) It could be, you know, we were, we were in St. Louis the night the president made the speech about COVID. We literally had landed that day. We were in the hotel ready to start rehearsing with the St. Louis troupe the next morning. And this comes across the TVs. And we sat there going, what's up with this? And we were performing on boats out there, by the way, as well. So um, so I called the boats and I said, hey, so what's the deal? And they said, oh, nothing. This is nothing. We're going to be fine. And I went, okay. So we came on the boat the next day and everyone was, was had like, you know, hand sanitizer, like all of us. It was very funny. It's like, you know, because nobody knew what to do. So we're hand sanitizing ourselves and and um, and the captain of the boat comes on and goes, this is weird. We just got some cancellations. And we're like, oh, what does that mean? Uh, no, nothing bad. It's like, you know, you know, just a couple of night. OK, we rehearse. We meet the next day. We're rehearsing again. And the captain of the boat comes on and goes, yeah. So like, you know, 50 percent of the people are, are canceling. We, we don't know what's going on. By the last day of rehearsals, we were literally in rehearsals and he walked in and said, we're closing the boats. They're closing the harbor. They're closing everything. So Simarine and I got on a plane terrified, not knowing what's going to happen. You know, we, we flew back to Florida. The minute we walked in the house, we said, we have to do something. This Sunday, let's try this. You know, and we were going to, well, just like the first show, we said, we're going to do it once. And if nobody watches, <laughs> we won't do it again. And, you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, a thousand people are watching it within two days. And we're going, what did we just do? What do we do to ourselves? Um, and yeah, we kept it going every, every Sunday night for a year. Um, and even more than a year, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we eventually had to put that away just because not that we didn't want to do it. We loved doing it. But when we returned to doing live shows, we couldn't do both at the same time. Uh, and that's the problem with that. Yeah. But no, we enjoyed doing that. And, you know, that was a learning experience too. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, we were using candles and little, little tiny clip lights to light ourselves and stuff. And, um, and we evolved and learned how we did it. And then we started bringing in guests. So we would have people come over and do it with us in the house. And we had musical guests and one person started joking. It's Phantasmagoria night live. And we're like, Oh, we like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We'll have the, the musical guest every performance and stuff. And uh, um, so, so we enjoyed doing it, but it, it was stressful at the end, but no less enjoyable. The only reason it was stressful was because we were warring with the stuff out there competing with the stuff in here. So, you know, we had to do something for people, you know, everybody was locked in their houses and, we had to give them something. So this was the best thing that we could give them the stories. And from me on this side of the screen, I wanted to let you know, it was greatly appreciated. I mean, we actually set our alarms to it to make sure that we caught it live. Oh, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. We had people, you know, we would, we had people who would wake up in Australia and have coffee while they were watching us because that's what time it was in Australia. We had people from Japan writing to us. We had, I mean, like everywhere, people were watching us and it just, it freaked us out a little, as you can imagine. But, um, but it was great to know that all of these people were there together and it started where they would start like, you know, writing notes to themselves. Hey, you know, Bill, 
good to see you here again this week and that kind of a thing. So it built like a sort of online community. And that was, that was, I think our favorite part. My favorite part was like when I used to film her dancing, cause I would pick up the camera mm-hmm. and I would see all the names of the people who are in, <laughs> you know, I'd be like, Oh my gosh, you're Sabi. How are you? Good to see you here again, darling. You know, it, it became like a large family. And so it was, it was a lot of fun. So you've probably have read over hundreds of different ghost stories. Do you have any favorites? Oh, wow. Um, some of my favorites are ones that we don't do um, because, you know, we don't do the ones that are uh, of this century. We only do ones from the past century. I think the, the, the closest we've cropped into the 1900s was 1912. So I, I, me personally, the ghost story, the, both the book and there is a movie of it that has stayed with me since childhood is The Legend of Hell House. Oh. It's an incredible book. You know, it came out around the same time as Haunting of Hill House, you know, which, mm-hmm. which people, Shirley Jackson and people know that. But The Legend of Hell House, the, the movie, I saw the movie first before I read the book, and it terrified me. Um, and I loved Roddy McDowell, and he terrified me. <laughs> you know, I was a child watch. I was like nine years old watching this movie. Um, and then reading the book and seeing how, one, how close the movie was to the book, but how much darker psychologically the book is than you can ever do in a movie. Um, that's probably my favorite. Um, that kind of chilling haunted house tale is, is one of my own. And then to be honest with you, I love the, even when I know that they're not real, I love reading the mythology of true ghosts. Those stick with me. Um, uh, I don't know how much you've read. And a lot of people don't know this tale. There's a story called ocean born Mary. And it's been proven not to be real, right? It, it, it's, you know, they, they've traced how someone made it up and how the legend stuck and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, she never actually lived in this house, which is supposed to be the Oceanborn Mary house and all this stuff. And it's just, it's a ghost story that's lasted with me again since childhood. It's, it's a lovely, it's a romantic story with no romance in it, if that makes any sense. It's about a baby, a woman who is on board a ship when the pirates, you know, board the ship. And because he realizes that she's pregnant, he decides he's going to not kill the people on board the ship. All he asks is that she name the child after his mother. And he goes and he gets this big tapestry of material and gives it to her and says, when the child is an adult, this is to make her wedding dress. And that we hear that. Right? So it's this beautiful tale. And the child grows up and they meet up again years later. And she dedicates her life to taking care of him. Um, and supposedly he's buried under the hearth in, in the fireplace in the kitchen and the treasure, you know, there's a pirate, so there's got to be a treasure. And the treasure is never found, but visitors to the house see Oceanborn Mary walking from the house and dropping down something into the well. And so that's the legend of Oceanborn Mary. Man, I've read that when I was like six. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, much older than six now. We won't reveal the actual age, but boy, it stayed with me. So I think those are the ones that stay with me. Legend of Hell House as a fiction and real ghost stories. And as you know, I live in a haunted house. So real ghost stories stick with me very well. I am so glad you brought that up because I know the the subject of this uh, episode is about the tradition of uh, Victorian ghost stories and all, but I so want to hear about your haunted house. Ah, um, it's um, so... If I wanted to be romantic and clever, I would give her birth name, which is Minerva, 
because I said, what a great name that is, right? But mm-hmm. in reality, she went by the name Murdy. Um, it, uh, we visit her grave once a year, <laughs> and it says Murdy. It doesn't say Minerva. It says Murdy on her grave. She um, she lived here. The house was built for her. So the house that we live in was built in 1925. Uh, well, it was registered in 1925. The house existed in 1924. We know that because there was a party at the holidays here at the end of 1924. So it was in the papers. So we know that that existed. Um it was built by George Decotts, who was an attorney at the time. In fact, he was the prosecutor in the Rosewood Massacre case. So he was actually a famous attorney at the time. And he built the house. He built the house next to us as well. Uh, well, built it, the, the family's built it. It was built for her sister. And they, the family still lives right across the alley from me. Um, so when we first bought the house, we we were closing on it and we asked the former owner if there was anything they wanted to tell us about the house. And he said, what do you mean? I've I've told you everything. You know, he was taken aback at first. And I said, no, is there anything you want to tell me about the house? And he went, Oh yeah. Now he didn't believe in ghosts. He didn't believe in hauntings, but he told us the legends of, of Murdy. And we said, well, did this, did anything ever happen to you? And he said, well, this would happen, but there had to be a reason. And this would happen and there had to be a reason. But the big one that he told us was that the, uh, the dogs used to go running through the house and end up at the base of the stairs, looking up the stairs as if someone was walking down the stairs. And the funny thing is, is that she's called the lady on the stairs. That's, that's Murdy's nickname. Going back to the 50s, the 50s is when people first started seeing her. So we bought the house and we thought nothing of it. And, you know, it, it's all fine. And then my, uh, my daughter, my stepdaughter, daughter from many years ago, from a, a, a first marriage was here at the house. She said, Oh, I'll clean up dad. So she was here at the house cleaning some stuff. And she called me going, um, there's somebody on the stairs. And I went, what do you mean? Who's in the house? Uh, there's nobody here, but there's somebody on the stairs, dad. And I went, oh, my gosh. And I told her the story, you know, about Murdy. And it was New Year's Eve, that first year we bought the house. We weren't living here yet. We were renovating it. We came to check on the house. And both Simarine and I kind of looked back at the house and went, Happy New Year's. And music started playing in the house, which freaked the hell out of us. <laughs> and we went searching for, you know, who left a cell phone, what contractor left, a, you know, uh, a radio on. There was nothing. So from that point forward, it escalated. Uh, the, the daughter I mentioned has seen Murdy many times. The uh, I have seen Murdy twice. Um, you know, that whole thing of peripheral vision, catching it. That's what's happened to me. Simarine has constantly heard her, but not seen her. She's never actually seen the physical presence. Um, the contractors, <laughs> big guys working on my house. <laughs> They told us stories about Murdy. They're like, John, this happened today. I mean, literally, you know, they, they were seeing her and hearing her and freaking out. And then the best thing is, is we finally went to the neighbor and I didn't realize they were the family. This is like, they were new people to me. And I said, Hey, listen, I got a strange question for you. Do you know anything about my house? And the woman said, aunt Murdy. Yep. We know. And I went, well, what are you talking about? That's my aunt. Um, this is, you know, well, I'm, I'm her niece, great, great niece. You know, this is the f- same family. My mother, who's still alive, actually knew Minerva and George and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, and they've seen her. 
they, they, um, we've gone away and we come home and like two days later, once she contacted me and said, listen, I didn't want to bother you when you were away. And I didn't want to freak you out when you came home, but every night she was in the back window looking for your cars. And we were like, Oh my God, you know? So, so everybody has seen her in some way. People come to the house. They like feel something walk past them or they sense her here. She's a good spirit. Um, there's been no harm. We let her know she is more than welcome to be here. Um, and like I said, once a year, it's usually on Christmas. Well, there you go. It's either on <laughs> Christmas Day um, or on New Year's Day. One of the two. We bring flowers to her and George and her son because it wasn't the same. It was the second marriage for both of them. Um, her son is buried. Uh, Fred was his name. He actually was one of the owners of the house too. So we go bring them flowers once a year and spend a little bit of time and clean up the gravesite a little bit. Um, and, uh, and then we literally say, uh, when we're leaving, uh, see you back at home, Murdy. <laughs> we leave, you know, and come back home. So she's a benevolent ghost. She's a friendly ghost. Um, uh, I think I'm trying to remember who said this. Um, it was a, a photographer was taking pictures of the house and they said, Oh, it's not your house. It's her house. You're just the caretakers. And we were like, Ooh, Ooh. So we, we firmly believe that, that she is our roommate, so to speak. So we like having her here. Yeah. So there's, there's the story of Minerva. That is great. Yeah. My wife, she long laments that she wants to buy a haunted house at some point. So well, she's very you, jealous of you both. But you never know. I mean, think about this. If you, yeah. if you buy a house built in the 90s, you have a good chance of finding a ghost in that house now, right? You know, mine being 100 years old didn't dictate that a ghost should be here. I'm sure there's plenty of 100-year-old houses where there's no one. Um, we tend to think she, she did not die in the house. She died in the hospital. But uh, you brought up Florida earlier. Yes. She died in the hospital, and the body was brought back to the house, as you used to do, and was laid in state in the upstairs bedroom for a week. Wow. Um, yeah. The family had to convince George to let her go. He didn't want to let her go. He oh. loved her very much. Um, so, um, yeah, so she's, it, it would be where our guest bedroom is now, not our main bedroom, but that's where she was laid out for a week, which is just, yeah. and that's when um, I mentioned the neighbor's mother, the neighbor's mother was in the house when she was laid out upstairs, uh, which is just incredible. Um, so, yeah, so there, there, therein lie the tale of, of Minerva, which we have told as Phantasmagoria, I might add, during some of, in fact, if you were on the, tr no, I don't think it was told on the train, but we've told it at events. Uh, we've told the, the, um, the story of the ghost of First Street, which was my former mother-in-law lived in a very haunted house in Sanford. And then we've also told the story of the lady on the stairs in some of our, uh, some of our Ooh. tales. So what are some of the sneak peeks that you can give us of future plans? Ah, well, we are thinking of another Valentine's day show. That's for sure. We Wait. are working on our concept for the, um, the Megacon show, which is going to be a mirror for what we're doing in the fall. You know, we, we like to kind of bring those two together. You know, we're looking at, um, and actually a, a national story contest to bring in um, uh, ghost stories that are similar in tone to what we like, you know, the Victorian Gothic kind of a feel, which we would then adapt to the stage. So oh, those are some tales we're talking about. We've been talking about exactly what we're doing right here for two years. We've been talking about a podcast and um, I have a very dear friend who um, out in California who, who writes, um, 
uh, Video Palace was one of his. And so he writes the stuff for Audible. And when he heard, he's like, and you didn't think to ask me for advice? And I'm like, I don't want to bother you. And he's like, no, I can help you. So we're talking about doing some kind of a podcast. Um, And of course, we're planning for uh, Phantasmagoria 14. Uh, we are signing the contracts for the theaters right now. They book us a year out. So we received the dates and the contract for the Dr. Phillips Center. And immediately after that, we received the dates for the Athens Theater. Um, and now we'll go around, you know, to our other haunts, so to speak. Um, and then the other thing that we've loved doing over the past couple of years is the stuff we do in Tampa. We've been working with the Tampa Theater for years now, not just doing our shows, but writing custom shows for them. So in the midst of doing all of this <laughs> during the main stage show, we wrote a two-hour murder mystery, phantasmagoria, interactive, immersive walkthrough show that we performed twice at the Tampa Theater, which is, if you've ever been there. Yes. Oh, my God. Stunning historical space. So this is our second year doing an immersive walkthrough show. The first year was more of a phantasmagoria type show. The second year was this murder mystery interactive show, which went gangbusters and it's fun because they come see part of it and then they get a drink and then they come see part of it and they get a drink. So by the end of it, they've had like eight drinks. So they're <laughs> very drunk when we're all sitting there together. Um, so that went so well. So, you know, the, the, the person, our contact there, Jill, she's already talking about next year, <laughs> you know, we'll do this. So we look forward to writing another uh, original story for there. Um, so, you know, those, those are our loose plans for next year. And then I don't know if I can, well, I guess I can announce part of this. Um, we're collaborating with the opera again in 2024. Um, this time to create a whole show with the opera. Oh, great. Um, so um, uh, it's, it's, it's basically the opera singers and Phantasmagoria creating a show uh, together. So I can't say what it is, but it's definitely something that's right up our repertoire. <laughs> and, um, and we'll, you know, we have to, you know, this is corporate. So we have to budget it by the end of this year. And next year we have to start making the plans and the designs for it. And then we'll actually start rehearsing it in uh, spring of 2024 to perform a joint opera Orlando slash Phantasmagoria production. This will be our third with them um, uh, doing that. And so it'll be, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be an amazing year. I'm very happy for you. Thank you, my friend very much. Now, currently, Tickets are going on sale for the Orlando A Christmas Carol, A Ghost Story of Christmas, and The Canterville Ghost. You are dated for December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th in Orlando, mm-hmm. December 11th in Ocala, mm-hmm. December 17th in Sanford, and December 22nd and 23rd in DeLand. Absolutely. And just to let you know, we are going to be in the front row on your December 22nd show. Ah, I love it. Oh, it's it's what a great place to end the tour. We usually end our tours at the Athens Theater, and that's what we're doing next year too. It's just it's it's a home, you know. Um, and they've embraced us. They they held us off for a year or two because they're like, ah, we don't know what you guys are, <laughs> you know. And but they weren't sure, you know, if we would play to their audience. And then we sold out the first shows we did there like a week before we even did the show. And they're, they're, what a wonderful family they are at the Athens Theater. They're just great people. And so it's, it's by going to all these places, it's like going home. Uh, we did our show in Ocala this year for the first time because of the pandemic, right? So we hadn't gone back there. So it was the first time since the pandemic. And it was, it was like being home again. 
You know, it just was this great feeling. So we love working with our, we call them partners. We don't even call them venues. We call them partners and they're just wonderful to work with. Now, for those who are looking for more information and venue links, please visit www.phantasmagoriaorlando.com. Links will be in the show notes to this podcast and will be on all of our social media. Please be sure to get your tickets early because they do sell out. So uh, before we go and take a walk out of the mist, uh, is there anything that you would like to add to the interview? Absolutely. This Christmas Eve, get about four candles, light them, and read a ghost story. That would be the best possible celebration and gift you can give to Phantasmagoria for everybody in the audience to spend 15 minutes reading a ghost story to each other that will keep the stories alive. And that's, that's our whole purpose. That is a great sentiment. I promise you that we will definitely do that. Wonderful. Thank you, my friend. Byron, I really appreciate that. Uh, please pass on our congratulations and best wishes to Semarine. Uh, we hope to see her again soon. And until we meet again at your next stage performance, I uh, wish you the very best. Thank you. As, as we always say, for us, time is always. Good night, my friend. Good night. <laughs>